We're going to read 16 through 19 together. Habakkuk 3, 16. So I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, and yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fell and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. You may be seated, kids. You guys can head that way. So we're going to finish this great book this morning, Habakkuk. And I've entitled the message this morning, He Makes My Feet Sure. So as we've talked about in these days, Babylon is coming, the Chaldean people under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. Judgment's coming upon Judah. Great destruction is going to come. The reputation of Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean people are well known to those in Judah. And so Habakkuk has been dealing with that reality, and he begins to think about the change that's going to come. What is going to happen in Habakkuk's life? Well, everything's going to be altered. Everything's going to change. And I begin to think about what must have been going through his mind. Everything economically was going to change for Judah when an enemy invades you and begins to take over the land. His family heritage would be greatly impacted. No doubt his family would be affected. We don't know if he was married or not, but if he was married, did he have kids? His marriage, his kid's life, his kid's future would be deeply affected. Were his parents still alive? Did he have brothers and sisters that he was still connected with? Life at the temple was going to change. We know that that they're going to destroy the temple, and it's going to be a long time until the temple is rebuilt again. And so temple life... Worship there is going to be affected. Where he lived was going to be affected. The Chaldean people came in, they destroyed everything or, or took it over. So what city is he going to live in? And I imagine he began to think to himself this, am I going to be carried away to the exile? Or will I die when they come into the city and they come into Judah? And so he's probably thinking about that. Will I die or will I go to Babylon? Financial impact is going to happen in his life. He will see literally blood in the streets when they come into the city and they begin to take over things. He will lose likely every earthly possession. Everything in his life is going to change except for one thing, where his faith rested. God does not change. And this is where he gets to at the end of this is though everything he knows is going to rock his world and rock everybody else's world with 
with the Chaldean people coming in and them taking over and them being sent off to exile. It's going to be a devastating time. And so he's got to get to a place where, where do I find a firm foundation upon which to stand? Every one of us are looking for that. We want to know that, that when our world is rocked and things do come, is there a way to find stability? Sometimes in our lives, everything changes. It's, it is devastating and, and perspective is forced upon us to be gained. And we come to know this, that there's only one way to have that firm day foundation. There's just one reality of something that is not going to change, and that is God. God will not change. And so he is to be trusted. Jesus invites us to come to him, to yoke our lives with him and let him carry our burden, let him carry us as well and to walk with him and learn that he is gentle and kind and that he's almighty and that he is strong. And Habakkuk is coming to that place where he's going to see that though everything's going to be devastating, he sees God is good and faithful, so he will run to him. So as we read the text today and we finish up this, there are two choices before us. And there will always be these two choices. One is, first of all, that he speaks about in verse 16. We'll read it again in just a moment. And that is this, that we would fear, we would live in fear of the desolations of life that come. I think we all know what a desolation is. It's when, when something really significant comes and it just devastates everything. And there's an emptiness that's there. There's no fruit that's there. And, and it's just a heaviness that settles in a place. And this was coming to Judah. So there's a way in which in our life when these things come that we will live in fear of the desolations that are coming or we will live in fear of an enemy of some sort. This is where Habakkuk's been all through the book. He's been wrestling back. There's aspects where he's reminded himself, I've got to go back and I've got to remind myself of who God is. And so he does that in chapter 2. He's reminded of that. He gets that to that place again in chapter 3 where he looks back in history. We talked about the last week where God led them. And when he led them, everywhere God stepped, there was power and pestilence and plague. And the mountains moved. And God was so big that he could just stand there and he could measure the earth. So Habakkuk gets to that place where he has to decide what he's going to do about the desolation that's coming. And what is he going to do about the fear that's coming? If you and I choose the course of living in fear of the desolations when they do come in our lives, then we will live in deep fear for most of our lives. And when you do that, you are stuck, shackled by life that stands on shifting sand. We're tossed about. So that's one option. A second option is this is choosing and deciding to have a definitive trust in God no matter what. If the desolations come, if a health issue comes, if a financial issue comes, if a family issue comes that seems to just be overwhelming, that there would be a definitive trust in that moment to rest our lives with God. This is where Habakkuk is. Verse 16, he's there. He knows the truth that's coming. And it just devastates him emotionally to where it affects him physically, where he literally cannot 
hardly stand anymore. So let's talk first of all this morning about the devastation of fear. So look with me again in verse 16. I just want to um, look at some of the first parts of verse 16 that are important for us, and then we'll look at the second part. So Habakkuk says, listen, I hear this. God has spoken about what he's going to do and who he is and what he's done in history. And so Habakkuk says, I hear. And when I hear, my body trembles. I'm so shaken over what God's going to do that my lips quiver at the sound. We talked about this last week. We've all been in those moments where there's an emotional moment and it's overwhelming and we, we try to talk and it's hard to talk. Our, our, our lips quiver and it's hard to get the words out and this is where he is and he just, he says this, there's a rottenness that's sinking into the, deep inside my bones. And when a rottenness gets there, if you've been there before, you've been so emotionally disabled in a sense and overwhelmed and you can't hardly eat. You've been there before and, and you're just, what, what am I going to do about this? And, and it's just, it's just settling inside of him of, of what is going to come. And he, and now as he thinks about it, he's like, my legs won't even stand. They are trembling at the reality. And I think part of this is he's in awe of what he's just heard about what God has done in history and what God can do in the days ahead. But I also think part of this is he is incredibly fearful over what is going to come. And so there is a devastation that comes where the weight of the words that God has spoken and the reality of the judgment that's coming makes him not be able to walk steadily. And as he thinks through all that God has done in the past, he staggers at the thought, though, of what is going to come in the days ahead. So at times, this is the right response in our lives to be staggered by what's going to come, by what God is going to do. Sometimes in great ways when God moves, we are staggered by what God does and what, what God has said in his word and we experience him. And then at times of life, we are staggered by life as to what has come into our lives. And, then, and Habakkuk just shakes and he shook in such a way as he tried to walk as a staggered follower trying to figure out how do we get through the days ahead. If you and I choose to live in the realm of fear, we will stay stuck and we will live as believers with lots of up and downs. Now we have up and downs spiritually, that's the case. We go through peaks and valleys of life, but, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about living in fear of an enemy or someone else or something that may come in the future in regard to a desolation or a desolation that has come, something devastating that's come now. We will live in fear of that, and it becomes devastating. It's crippling. Habakkuk is staggered. He can hardly stand. And he will remain with his intellectual questions with no answers unless he decides to do something differently, unless he turns his gaze from that and puts his eyes on Jesus. This man is a prophet. What good is he going to be to anybody in Judah if he just lives under the weight of fear? The fear of the desolation that's coming from the Chaldean people and their leader. How's he going to give any direction? How's he going to model 
what it looks like to trust God, something has got to change in his life. And I love this about him. Though his faith is weak at times and though he is fearful, he's at least, I like this, he's not afraid to be honest with God about what he thinks and what he feels. We should always be that way. Listen, we're going we're gonna to have moments where we don't get life and we don't get why God has allowed something to pass through his sovereign hand into our lives. And we may have questions about God. It's a reality for humanity, but we've got to not remain in those questions to where for the rest of our lives or for a real long period of time, we have these questions where we charge God with somehow doing wrong. So when we have the questions, we run to Him. We pour the questions out before Him, wanting clear answers, not man's answers and not man's opinion, but what does God's Word say about the questions that we are wrestling with? And a careful examination of the Scripture will always reveal to us there are people who have gone through what we are going through, and there are lessons to learn from them. And so, though Habakkuk is not always right, he is honest. And I tell you, when you look at the people that you find in Scripture... You don't find anybody in the scripture who had extra powers. None. They were just raw humans dealing with things that entered into their lives. And they're wondering at times, where are you, God, in the dark night of the soul? And wondering about what does the future hold? And so you look at these men and women in scripture, and they didn't have supernatural power as if they were connected to, you know, Marvel or DC or whatever you want to throw out. They were just people who were devastated in life, who exercised a faith that their faith in their life must rest in God and His Word and who He is. And they were able to overcome moments. They were able to walk through issues to see God be God and have a confirmation in their life that God can be trusted, that he ultimately is absolutely good. So Habakkuk's trembling is not from having no faith at all, but it's from a place of a weakness of faith, of living in fear about things, and from a place where he needs God to intervene, he, he needs to make, he needs to have a new, fresh perspective, and he needs God's strength. So his faith has not fully failed him. It's just not at a place where he's fully trusting in the Lord, and he's got to get to that place. So I remind us in this moment of this our weakness, our moments of question, our moments of wrestling with things actually become avenues for God to do something. For when we are weak, what is he always? What does the scripture say? He is strong. So Habakkuk's at that place. We get to that place where we are weak. We know we are weak. We acknowledge the reality of that. And they become moments and avenues for God to show himself strong. Listen, 
We have no idea of the understanding that Jesus has of humanity. But I know this, that he understands humanity. And the reason I know that is because he became flesh. And he knows what it's like. He lived, he lived among people. He knew their fears, their struggles, the wrestlings and the questions and the longing for true religion, true relationship with God that wasn't around during the time when he was here. So when he went to places, people marveled at what he taught and what he said and what he did because he taught and he lived in a way that was unlike any religious leader that they saw in their generation. So he knows the wrestlings that people have. He knows that reality. And listen to this. This is Psalm 103, verse 4. God knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. And so he knows that we're going to have questions. He knows that we're going to wrestle with things. As a matter of fact, I said it a while ago, but just to remind us, when you have an honest look in the pages of Scripture at people like Abraham and David and Jeremiah and Peter and John the Baptist, they lived doubtful and wrestled at times with faith. Paul writes this. I don't know if you knew this or not, or this ever stood out to you. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Listen to this. This man that we just hold up and think, oh, he never, never struggled. Listen to what Paul said. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We could not find rest. But we were afflicted at every turn. And then he describes what was happening within the group. He said, we were fighting without and we had fear within. The Apostle Paul, this man of great faith, and he did, talked about that he wrestled inside of his life at times with fear and what to do with that fear. You see, as members of the body of Christ, we're going to have fear at times. But we cannot ever be controlled by fear. For we have been given a spirit of power that resides in our lives. So Habakkuk has this choice before him. Do I remain in the first part of verse 16 where I can't function because I'm just devastated, living in fear over what is coming? And I tell you, looking around at our culture today, it's enough to just begin to shake us and to be fearful of the future and be fearful of a number of things. But I just want to make it clear this morning and remind us, fear, that kind of fear, the fear of man, is not the way of God. That is not the way of God. The kind of fear that's that is the way of God is when we are fearful in all of who he is, of who his greatness is. And so we have got to choose another course of life. And so here's the reality. So we've got one choice is we live in fear. We live under the weight of the desolations that sometimes come in our lives. Or we do secondly this morning, the last part of verse 16 we have a definitive trust that rests in who God is. So let's put all 16 together. Look with me again. 
So he says, I hear and my body trembles. My, whips, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And here's the definitive trust. Look, yet, even though that's the case, that, that this is the way I feel, this is the effect this is having upon me, even though the Chaldean people are coming. They're coming. God said it. It's coming. Yet, this is what I will do. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who will invade us. It's interesting, this word here of I will quietly wait. In the Hebrew, it means this. It means, and don't misunderstand this, and I'll clarify it in a second. It means this, literally, the the word is an absence of movement. So when he says, I will quietly wait, it means there's an absence of movement that's going to come. He's going to remain quiet. What he means there is he's not going to complain to God anymore. He's not going to run away to Egypt. He's not going to be like Jonah. He's not going to get on a boat and try to run from the reality. He's going to quietly wait because God says this is going to come and he's got to embrace it. So the quietly wait is he's not going to continue to preach or or live his faith and encourage others to to live their faith and to, to communicate the truth. That's not what he's saying. This quietly wait is not I'm just going to give up and not do anything. That's not what he's saying. It's this. Sometimes in our lives, we just simply have to embrace what God has said. Even with the weight of it, and we quietly wait and trust for that. And that's the word there. In some places, and this word is used in the Hebrew, and it speaks about reviving, and it speaks about refreshing. So he says, I'm staggered, can hardly stand, can hardly even talk, and yet I will quietly wait, and I will trust the Lord. And here's why. God's words must matter more than our comfort. And our desire for justice about what's going on and even desire for safety. His words must matter more than anything. You know, it's hard for us here to fully understand that because it just doesn't cost us much in regard to threats from government or neighbors turning us in or or, or communicating something. We have no fear of being arrested for our faith. But the people who do, they, they get this, that there's a time where they just, they accept the reality that life is not always going to be comfortable and their desire for justice or their desire for safety is not even a reality. And those kind of people have such a deep faith because they know that living the words of God is costly and it's worth it. I want to ask you to turn to your left for a second to Isaiah chapter 28 for a moment. And I want to share just a couple more things under point two this morning about the definitive trust. Isaiah chapter 28. And then we'll get back to Habakkuk. Isaiah wrote about a rest and a trust that is to come to us and where it comes from. And I want to, I want to share that this morning. Isaiah 28, we're going to read 9 through 12. So Habakkuk's getting to that place where he recognizes 
that God has spoken, something's going to come, and so he's got to wait. He's got to trust in the Lord, and he's got to wait for what God's going to, what he's going to do in bringing judgment to the Chaldean people. So Isaiah 28, verse 9 through 12, follow along with me. So to whom, listen, look at the question, to whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? So he asked another question, but it's a, a question that gets answered to the first question. So to whom, verse, first question, verse 9, to whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. Now look at verse 10. Here's where the answer comes. Here's where the trust comes. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, Line upon line, here a little, there a little. Verse 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary and this is repose. And yet they would not hear. So let me stop there. And I want, to, I want to remind you and I this morning where our, where our rest comes from, where our definitive trust comes from. The world crumbles. Governments rise. Pressure comes. Desolations come. An enemy puts pressure. An enemy, an enemy mocks God. An enemy mocks God's people. Health issues arise. Relationship troubles come. Where do we find rest? Where do we find understanding? Well, Isaiah says this, here's where you find it. it. Those who have understanding, they don't remain children, just drinking milk all the time. They're the kind of people who know God and know God in a way that it, they, they learn this, that precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line by line, line by line, here a little, there a little, of communicating, speaking the truth, grounding our life in the truth. And when we do that, there is a rest that comes no matter what arises in our lives. Are you with me? This is the reality of life. And if we're ever going to understand God, if we're ever going to be ready when things come up, it will come when the practice of our life is Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line by line, line by line, here a little when we're at this place, there a little in this place, that the truth of God's word becomes the very direction and mission and purpose of our lives. In chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk, I want you to write this down so that when people read it, they will run and they will tell it. And I think for us, if we're going to find the kind of rest that we need, then it can only be found in connection and relationship with Jesus. Period. Not anywhere else. And so how does one do this? What are the principles to implement to keep fear from gripping us strongly to where we have definitive trust in God? 
Well, I think first of all is this. We have to, Habakkuk 2.4b, we have to live by faith and not feelings. Did you see what his feelings did to him? He could hardly stand. Feelings are okay. God's given them to us. So we, we have to live by faith and not feelings. He's so overwhelmed emotionally that he is physically staggered. And if his faith depended upon feelings, he would have never waited on the Lord. He had to be forced to go beyond what his feelings were and to trust in God. So the second thing that we do is when we can't live by faith, we, we live by faith, not feelings, and we have to trust in the Lord and we have to re- wait regardless of our feelings. We live by faith. So even in the days of great distress, we can have great faith because we know that God is good. He is good. Now this week, my picture-taking ability was called into question on the Facebook page. Charity is not in here, but she mocked my picture-taking. So she took pictures of me and posted them. Now I just have a phone, but if you want to take really, really good pictures, where are they developed? In the dark, right? Great pictures are developed from great cameras in the dark. And I want to submit to you this morning that great faith is developed by walking through the dark days of life. If everything was comfort and ease, we would not have great faith. And eventually, we just kind of look at ourselves like, well, look how great I am. I just have comfort and ease. Look how I do this. But faith is developed when we are forced down on our knees. It is in the dark times where we learn the reality of our faith and our character. And at times, some of the most prized things that we come to know and that are a part of our life are found in the dark valleys. The stars will not be seen today. Oh, they're shining right now. But we will see them when? When the dark comes tonight. They will shine and they're shining. And so this is what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2. That we're not to live complaining. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that you will live like stars in the night sky, shining out. And he says there in Philippians 2, as you hold out the word of life, as you trust in God's word in the dark days. And I tell you, we've got to become the kind of people that are weaned from living on milk and we're the kind of people who live precept by precept, line by line, hear a little when we're there talking about God's word, there a little talking about God's word. And when we do that, we find a rest even in the moments of desolation. But do you notice what Isaiah said about the people? What did the people say? We're not listening to you, God. Not interested. Let's look at the third thing. Look at 17 now. He is describing total loss. Listen to this. 
Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I want to stop there, and I want to talk about this for a moment, and I want to talk about the desolations upon the land. So what's Habakkuk doing? Here's what he's doing. He knows what the Chaldean people do. They come into a land, they destroy everything, and they take everything. And he knows Judah. He's a prophet, so he's traveling around. He's speaking. He's sharing the message God has entrusted with him. He's looking at olive trees. He's looking at vineyards. He's looking at large flocks of sheep and cattle. And he's looking at and he knows this, that all of this is about to be gone. Nebuchadnezzar and his people are going to come in, and they're just going to make desolation of the land that flows with milk and honey. The enemy was coming. Hear this. It's great application for our lives. The enemy was coming, and they would value nothing in Judah. They didn't care about Judah. They were going to steal what they needed and take back to the land what was there, and they would not spare anything. In the Chaldean people's minds, everything was up for destruction, and they would find joy in destroying it. Now, I want you to hear this. We live in a culture today here in the West where there is an enemy that is at work powerfully in our country. The value is nothing of our faith, but mocking it, mocking Jesus, mocking his people, mocking the church. And they're not interested in sparing anything of our religious heritage of our nation. They're not interested in seeing any of that come to light again and be significant again in our country. They have no desire for any of that to be a reality in this country again. And they're going to do everything they can to continue to make laws, make decisions from the bench, use the media, use movies and music and on and on and on. And they're going to do everything and not not spare anything to destroy what you and I treasure as the treasure Jesus. Desolations come to people of great faith. And they sound like things like this, losing a job and not being able to find one. A health issue, a desolation of a health issue that's just going to remain. For some people, I know this is the case. They're, they got married and, and, and were serious about the marriage and they were going to They were going to remain faithful and stay in the marriage until they died. But their spouse was not interested in that. They didn't have a a desire for that, but it came and it was there. Now they're living with the reality of the breakup of a home. And they didn't want it, but it's there. And that's a desolation. That's difficult. Some people have wayward children. They keep them up at night. Pray and they pray and they pray. People are in lifeless marriages, just with a roommate. Some people live with the inability to never 
get out of financial stress. Can anybody relate to that? It just seems to. And these desolations come. And Habakkuk's point in this is, is this reality. Is there anything worth believing in and living for when a desolation comes to your life? Is there a treasure that's beyond having comfort in life? And I submit to you today, there is. That there is something so valuable and so good that the enemy cannot touch it, cannot steal it, cannot take it. And you don't know it until a desolation comes into your life. So here's Habakkuk, and he knows this. Did you notice in verse 17, that's total loss. No animals, no crops, no fruit, no this, no that. Desolation. It's not unusual for God's people to go through some darkness. This life is not one where each successive year gets smoother and sweeter in regard to comforts. But I do know this, that though the trouble comes and the desolation may come, if our faith rests in Jesus, each year does get smoother and sweeter in regard to being able to handle what comes and being able to walk through that. Job, godly man, said this about God in chapter 19, verse 8. Listen to how he describes God. It's not a right description, but listen to what he says. God has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness on my paths. God's light. Job's in a dark place. God has allowed something to pass through his hands to bring devastation and desolation in Job's life. Boy, did he have desolation. John the Baptist felt that. Leads this great revival. Thousands upon thousands of people are coming to the Jordan River. He's the last Old Testament prophet. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. And then he gets arrested. And he sends some of his disciples, can you go ask Jesus, is he really the one? Is he the one? John the Baptist had some doubts. But Job had to get there. John the Baptist had to get there. Peter had to get there. We've got to get there where our doubts don't define us and we don't stay stuck there. We get to a place where we recognize the desolations may come, but God is at work. God is alive. God is doing things in our lives. So no, maybe no blossoms, maybe no fruit, maybe, maybe no olives. The fields are just dirt. There's no animals in the stalls. Is there still hope? And yes, there is. Look at verse 18. There is a decision that we've got to make, a decision to delight in God as the greater joy. So he says, and out of that desolation description, total loss of things that's coming, 
Habakkuk says, and yet I will rejoice. Listen to his will. I will do this. I'm going to make a decision. Because of who I know God is and that nothing is secure on this earth other than God and my relationship with God. So he says this, I'm going to make this decision. I am going to rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of of my salvation. He hasn't gotten to a place where he went to the local library and he bought the power of positive thinking. He wouldn't, oh, I've got to find some good vibes, thoughts and prayers with you, brother. This is not it. He recognizes my faith is floundering and I am fearful and I can't live this way. And so I've got to make a decision, a definitive decision, and I am going to rejoice And the only thing that lasts, the only thing that is secure, and that is God. Two things about that, that he rests and stakes his life on. The plan of God that God's going to do in bringing the Chaldean people, and then knowing that even in the midst of that, that as the Chaldean people come, he can find the presence of God in those moments. Listen to this verse. I saw it so differently this week. This is Psalm 1611. God, you make known to me the path of life. Listen to that. David says, God, you're the one who makes known the path of life. So if God makes known the path of life, what do we ought to do? We ought to know what the path of life is that God reveals. And he says this. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. If we want the fullness of joy that Habakkuk is talking about here, so yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation that God makes known, Psalm 1611, the path of life. And when we know the path of life and we get with God, he leads us to the path of life. That path of life leads us to him his presence, and when we find him in his presence, there is fullness of joy. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're thrown in the fiery furnace, there's no fear. Why? That no matter what happened, they tell Nebuchadnezzar, even if you throw us into the fire, our God will be with us, we'll die, or, or he will be with us in the midst of the fire. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. He has great confidence that God can shut the mouths of the lions. When we are in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. So therefore, get on the path of life to get into God's presence. And when you get in his presence at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So he says this, two intentional decisions. I will rejoice in the Lord. When we have the Lord, we have everything and can endure anything. Everyone faces things that seem too large. And how we face them must be by trusting in who God is and what he says. This word rejoice 
In the first part of verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. In the Hebrew means state of celebration that finds itself in an expression of singing and at times even shouting. The root word of this comes in to means, it means to circle around. It's where they got that song, old old spiritual song, will the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by. No, it can't. When God's people trust in him, the circle cannot be broken. So Habakkuk says, though desolations come, I've got to make a decision because they're going to come. And I will rejoice in the Lord. And secondly, he says, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. J.I. Packer noted that joy is a condition that is experienced, but it is more than a feeling. It is primarily, he said, a state of mind where it is resting in the word, in the presence of God. Joy is also a fruit of the spirit. It's not something that you and I can create on our own. So even if the worst thing were to happen, Habakkuk is saying that he and Judah were to lose everything. God is worth total trust regardless, for he is God our Savior. And so as God's people, we walk by his promises, not with complaining questions that question God's direction. We just know this, God can be trusted. And so I will choose to make a decision to delight in God as the greater joy in my life. Lastly, this morning, I want to point out the divine work of God in those who trust him. Look at 19. So God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. I want to give you three things here as we finish. Of the divine work that God does when we stand upon his truth and we walk in obedience to him, particularly when the desolations of life come. And one is this. We must recognize that we have no strength, that God is all strength. God must be, therefore, the strength of our heart. Habakkuk did not aim to find what he needed in his intellect. He'd been trying that, couldn't answer the questions. He didn't try to find it in the strength of man, nor in all the questions that he was asking that seemed to be so important to him At the time, he found what he needed in the Lord. And while we may tremble, God is a rock who can be trusted. While we may fail in our weaknesses, he will never fail us. And I will get through whatever comes by trusting in God. That's what Habakkuk did. God will be the strength of my heart. It is the Lord who is the strength of the source of our strength. We are not. Circumstances, better circumstances, will not be our strength. God is the source of our strength. Don't miss the theology of this key point 
We do not have what it takes, but God has everything that it takes. He has everything that we need. So the prophet has learned a great lesson that the weighting of doubt against the weighting of faith, that they bring about different results. Here's what the weighting in doubt does. It just enhances fear. It just destabilizes our faith and destabilizes our life. And it keeps us stuck, staggered under the weight of life. Here's what waiting in faith does. It enhances our faith. It moves us to a place of rejoicing faith. Psalm 73, 23 and following says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And so therefore, God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In 1842, in Glasgow, Scotland, a man named George Matheson was born. As a child, he only had partial vision, and as he grew older, his sight became progressively worse until by the time he was at age 18, he was totally and completely blind. Despite this reality, he was a brilliant student and graduated from the University of Glasgow and later from seminary. He became a pastor of multiple churches and eventually became the pastor uh, of a large church in Edinburgh where he was greatly respected and loved. As a young man, he fell in love with a woman that he couldn't see, and they became engaged. She began to think about the reality of her life with him and thought, I don't want to be married to someone who is blind, and so she broke off the engagement. And some believe that this painful moment of his life, this great disappointment of romantic love, led him to write one of the greatest hymns that's been written. We're going to do something different here for a moment. We're just going to take four minutes, and I want you to hear what he wrote and how he had a desolation come into his life. And instead of cratering under it and living in fear, he turned to God and he wrote some incredible things. And so if you would, watch the stream and let's listen to what he wrote.
So in one of the biggest desolations of his life, George Matheson turned to God and poured his heart out to the Lord. And now, well over about 120 years later, this is one of my favorite. I'll, I'll, I'll post this later today, but you got to learn this song, just of faith. And here's, here's the deal. Habakkuk got to the place where he was like, Lord, I can't do this, but you can. You can sustain me. And so I I know that I have a love that will not let me go, and so I rest my weary soul in thee. I give back to you the life that I owe, that in your ocean's depths it flows. They will be richer and they will be fuller. So Habakkuk gets to that place where he's like, God, you're the strength of my heart. And then he says these words. He says, and God, remember what he just said? I can't even stand God. But Lord, when I 
when I see that you're my strength, this weight that, that my legs can't stand anymore, now I think of a deer up on the mountain that he had seen in Israel that could walk in the most unusual places and to be stable. Have you ever seen these crazy things up in the mountains and how they just jump to places and stand there and you're like, how is that even possible? And so Habakkuk is like, he, he sees this picture. I am staggered in verse 16. And my lips quiver. And yet when I know that you are the strength of my heart, you make my life sure-footed. You make my feet like the deers. And lastly, he leads us to a higher place. He makes me tread. And I love what he writes here as a personal pronoun on my high places. You see, for each and every one of us, we go through different things and we're going to have our own valleys that people will walk with us through, but they're ours and and we own them. And yet God in the valleys raises us to higher places. Note the change in him. Remember this in the beginning? This is, this is what he did with his hands. God, what's up with you? And now this is what he does. I lift my hands to you. And if we live with this, shrugging our shoulders to God, we will never get to the higher place and understand who he is. But when we get to the place and then in the midst of the desolation, we can do this. Then we found a sweetness that cannot be found anywhere in this life. That's the book of Habakkuk. By the way, most likely, this third chapter was put to music and they sang it. They would sing this. And can you imagine when they got to the end and they're singing, I can't stand, my lips quiver, my God leads me to high places. And he makes my feet certain. Quietly waiting doesn't mean inactivity. Still means taking the gospel, but trusting God in the way that he's running the world, that he can be trusted. Let's pray.